today on Let Me Be Frank, Happy New Year. <laughs> we are joined by the dynamic and excellent Father Jeffrey Kirby, who uh, will speak with Bishop Caggiano about mercy, about teaching students, and about his new book, A Year with the Popes. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM or 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas app, which you know you can get at the Apple App Store, or the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. If you enjoy Let Me Be Frank on the app, you can help us out by going to your favorite podcast platform and giving us a five-star rating. And Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, Happy New Year to you, to our listeners. Happy New Year, Excellency. Yeah, and Happy Happy New Year to all our listeners. Yeah, definitely. Let's hope this year is one that will be less eventful worldwide than 2023 was. Amen. Please, God, this peace. Yes. Yes. Mm. Excellency, I don't know if you can see this right here. This what is, is that? What's that? This is my truly <laughs> pathetic attempt at, at a New Year's beard. So oh, this is about as much beard. Was that a tradition? Is that a tradition, New Year's? I thought you no, I just thought I'd give it a try. <laughs> but this is as much geography on my face that it'll ever cover, and it's uh, as thick as it'll ever off. get. Better off. So, Rula looks at it. She looked at it, and she was like, I think you have some dirt on your chin. So you know what's interesting? I I served, I presided at Latin Mass on New Year's Day at the oratory. Oh, awesome! And yeah, and then uh, one of the services in one of our schools, our high schools, which will go nameless, and they have a rule: no facial hair, huh? For any of the guys, right? Interesting. Yeah. Right. In the old days, I think Father Kirby was true for the priesthood too. I think there was, it was at least in most dioceses, bishops would not allow facial hair. Oh, wow. I don't know about the South, but up here in the Northeast, we're kind of renegades up here. Yeah. <laughs> well, Father's nodding his head. Let me, mm-hmm. uh, with that, let me get to introducing our special guest to kick off the new year. Um, so we are so delighted to have with us Father Jeffrey Kirby. Father Kirby is the pastor of Our Lady of Grace Parish in Indian Land, South Carolina. He's also an adjunct professor of theology at Belmont Abbey College, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Father Kirby is a moral theologian and a papal missionary of mercy. He's a senior contributor to Crux, host of the daily devotional, The Morning Offering with Father Kirby, and the author of many books, including A Year with the Popes. Welcome to Let Me Be Frank, Father Jeffrey Kirby. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. And Bishop as well. It's a pleasure to be with you. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. First of all, I must say, you are a busy man. My goodness <laughs> gracious. <laughs> How do you find the time to do all those things? My gosh. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Bishop, in, in, in authentic humility, um, I have a great staff of, uh-huh. of people who are committed to the Lord, committed to their areas of responsibility. And it, it's amazing when you have people who love the Lord and are skilled in their areas, they, they just shine. And there's opportunities mm-hmm. then to do other things as pastor that, you know, I wouldn't have to if I had to keep putting out fires and, you know, um, different right. areas. So I just have an amazing staff of of committed believers mm-hmm. who serve the parish. It's it's, it's a blessing. Mm-hmm. I in my morning prayer, I, I, of all the things I give blessings for, uh, my staff is one of them because it's it's it it yeah it, it's it's a blessing mm-hmm. to the people of God. It's a blessing to myself. It's a blessing to the overall mission of the church. Mm-hmm. Father Kirby, where is Indian land yeah. in South Carolina? So Indian land is uh, right near the Catawba Reservation in north central South Carolina. So we're right across, uh, pretty pretty much right across the border from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and a lot of my friends know that because they're always asking for hospitality when they get delayed on flights at the Charlotte airport. <laughs> oh, is yeah, that right? Uh-huh. But, uh, but I will <laughs> say that while we are near the reservation, I just want to clarify that actually um, 
Our Lady of Grace is, is an upper middle class um, parish um, that, you know, the Catawba uh, people uh, tend to be Mormons. Uh, we lost that about 100 years ago. They asked for a Catholic missionary. We didn't have a priest to send, and the Mormons came in. And uh, so the Catawba are principally uh, Mormons. Uh, Mike Parish is is predominantly um you know, Anglos. Uh, we have uh, a large Hispanic parish down the road from us, uh, St. Catherine's. Father Javier mm -hmm. Heredia does amazing work. Uh, but people here in Indian land, they think that we're a reservation uh, chapel. And um, I wish we were, uh, but um, yeah, no, we're, no, we're kind not. of just right. our, our little right. selves here. But. I must confess, I have the advantage of seeing you face to face, and our listeners obviously don't. But the image behind you is that uh, is that real? Oh, I wish. Bishop. Is that you? I wish. Oh, I, I was going to say, my gosh, it's beautiful land. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually in this like thing. It's, it's almost like right above a utility closet. I'm just in this like little room. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I, I told Stephen uh, before. I said, if I really had that background, I would never get any work done. <laughs> oh my gosh! I thought, my goodness gracious. Okay, so now Father. Kirby, um, I always ask my guests this question, but particularly for yourself as a priest, tell us your vocational story. Oh yes, wow! So, um, so thanks be to God. Um, so, grew up in a military family. So, and we mainly lived overseas. Uh, it was during the Cold War. So, uh, my father had multiple assignments in what was then West Germany. So, 1989, the the, the wall fell, and and we came home. And that's really when South Carolina became home. That's why sometimes people ask why I don't have an accent. Uh, and I say, well, because most of my childhood was overseas. They say, oh, so you're not a Southerner. It's like, well, please don't take that away from me because the South is the only home I know in the United States uh, other than the United States right. Army. So uh, we came back. I was around 13 years old. And then, you know, we kind of made South Carolina home. And what was interesting with our return to the United States is, you know, my parents, good people. Uh, they married. Uh, my mom was 17. My dad was 19. They were from the wow. mill towns up in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, right along the border there. And um, my dad oftentimes jokes that if it wasn't for Vietnam, um, you know, we would have just all been mill rats and uh, would have worked hard and died young. And um, so, so they married young. And then because of Vietnam, uh, my father enlisted. He wasn't drafted. Uh, he jokes. He said he wasn't going to allow them to draft him. So he just enlisted. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and he wasn't sent to Vietnam. Uh, he jokes and says that he was sent to another foreign country called Texas. And, uh, <laughs> right? and, and that's where I was born. And then the uh, overseas tours began in, in, in West Germany. But because of that, my parents being young and, and, and you know, uh, resources being limited and so on, uh, the faith early on was, was not a major part of our, our, our family life. You know, my parents are the product of Catholic schools and Catholic education. My mother was raised by, was, was taught by the nuns in Methuen, Massachusetts. And so the faith was there. And, and, and I tell people, it's like, it was like the ghost because it was very clear of right and wrong, which they received from their Catholic faith a strong sense of divine providence. Uh, I remember saying to my dad, like, well, how do we know where we're going to go next? You know, like what, what, what part of Germany or where we're going to go here? And, and my dad would always say, well, it's in God's hands. Like there's a plan. Mm -hmm. there, there's a plan. So, mm -hmm. so this type of ghost of the faith was there. And when we returned home and things became more stable, uh, when South Carolina became home and, and of course being in the Bible belt is, is a great help and encouragement to faith. That that's when really the the faith became more active in, in the home, you know, and uh, from that, uh, eventually um, getting back to mass on a regular basis. And mm -hmm. from there, it was serving the altar and getting to know the priests of, of my home parish. And uh, I had some amazing mm -hmm. priests uh, that um, very much indebted to. And um, my, my pastor uh, for most of my, uh, you know, middle school, high school, and, and college years, I'm on senior Charles Rowland. He's in his 80s. He's still alive, still a pastor <laughs> in one of our largest wow. parishes. Oh, tell that to my pastors. Good. How old is he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's Scotch-Irish, and I tell you, just don't mess with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, you see, wow. Yeah. So when did you hear the call? Like, when did you realize, my goodness, this could be for me? Yes, yeah, so well, I'll tell you, uh, kind of ironically, it was actually in the fourth grade. So uh, we were still overseas, and my mom came to pick up my sister and I from, from school. We were driving back, and um, I was in the back seat of the car, and I was thinking in my mind which one of the little girls in my class was going to be my girlfriend. And I didn't know what that meant. I mean, that's just, you know. 
But um, but out, out of the clear blue, I remember thinking, well, um, I'll just become a priest and I can love them all, right? And um, wow, and, 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 and Bishop, this was at a time where the faith was not prominent in, mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. my family life. But I just understood my parents have a great reverence for priests. Um, uh, there's a, a great story. My dad, when he wanted to marry my mother, uh, my grandfather said no. And my father was so upset, he went to the local priest and made his case. And the priest made a visit to my grandfather, stopping in the, you know, in the evening, having a cup of coffee and saying to my grandfather, who was also Frank, uh, Frank, um, Fran, my mom, is going to marry uh, the Kirby boy. And um, it's done, you know. And his response was, "Yes, father." <laughs> you know what I mean? So, 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 and, and, and so, you know. Of, of course, it was a different time, you know. Um, but my mm-hmm. parents had a great love for the priesthood, so certainly that was in the home. But I just remember thinking, I'll become a priest. I can love them all. And and in hindsight, I look back at that, and, and I think it was the beginning of the Lord fashioning me for mm-hmm. uh, for celibate love, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. ultimately molding and shaping. Um, you know my my story for uh, mm-hmm. the priesthood. So, mm-hmm. but obviously high school hit. There were other interests, and then I get I went to Francisco University of Steubenville, which I'm so grateful for. Um, I tell you that that was the best training ground for discipleship for me. And I tell people if I had not gone to Steubenville, I, I don't know if I would have become a priest. I just the 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 discipleship training that I received and the understanding of the relationship with the Lord obviously anyone can receive it in other places for me Steubenville was was the best place and mm-hmm. from there it's where I finally said okay uh, I'll give it a shot but uh, you'll appreciate this I told the Lord I'll give you a year you know <laughs> I'll give you a year actually what I first did was you had some really good friends uh, they had the household system in Steubenville so I had some really good guy friends and I. I, I actually said to the Lord at first, I said, look, um, this person, this person, this person, this person are, are much better. You know, you need to call them because I say, you know, I'm kind of a smart aleck and, you know, and, and kind of be a little pushy at times and stuff. So maybe, maybe there's somebody else that's better. And um, the Lord wasn't buying it and, and kept calling. And eventually I said, well, all right, fine. Because I thought I was going to go off to law school. I was all prepped for law school. And I said, mm-hmm. Lord, I'll give you a year. And we'll see what happens. And the mm-hmm. rest is history. And the rest is history. Because he knew what was best for you. And you were wise enough to figure that out. Amen. Right? Yeah. And, and to say yes. It's like, tremendous. Yeah. To tremendous. try to give that yes. So, so now, how many years are you a priest? Thanks be to God, almost 17. 17 years. Wow. I have to ask this question. How old are your parents, if I may ask? Oh, yeah. So my mom is... Uh, almost 68, and uh, my father, God rest him, uh, died uh, about a year and a half ago. So, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 so. yeah I'm sorry. Okay, so they're still very young. Uh, he was he was 68 when he died. Yeah, they're yeah. still very young. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about all the things you've done because there's a whole slew of things you've done, but let's start with something that I find fascinating because another dear friend of mine has been one of these, uh, the papal missionaries of mercy, what was that whole ministry like? Yes. Yeah, so, so first, um, it, it was a great experience of the church um, because I my seminary was at the North American College, so I got to see a little glimpse of of you know the engine room of the church, mm-hmm. and being a patient, papal missionary mercy was was kind of an experience of that because it was this great honor and a great su- uh, summons and, and and commission. But then afterwards, it was like, okay, well, what what's expected? And, and no one really kind of knew. <laughs> Right, and, and I was like, "Well, oh, uh, well, I want to make sure I fulfill what's being asked. So, what, what are are their duties, or what? And and really, we kind of we kind of just had to figure it out. Um, you know, obviously, the creation of the missionaries of mercy came right from the Holy Father's heart. He wanted to go right to the grassroots to make sure that the message of mercy was was reaching the people in the pews. And so he created that, but but really it was more of a general vision. And then he kind of just threw it uh, to the grassroots and said, basically, um, you know, make it happen. And in the course of of being a, a missionary mercy, what but I realized very quickly was that every missionary mercy is different. And so we have our, our national gatherings. We have college chaplains. We have priests who are involved in in diocesan leadership. We have pastors. We have uh, professors. Everyone's in a different ministry. It's amazing. And really, the idea mm-hmm. is that you know to take in, to take the call of mercy and and the teachings of, of Pope Francis on mercy and wherever our current ministries are, be, because 
very few people in missionary ministries are, are doing it full time. But wherever we are, that we implement that call to our current ministries. So, for example, as a parish priest, uh, especially you know near Charlotte, North Carolina, which is uh, one of our larger cities in the southeast, uh, I very much understand. Okay, I my my parish has to be a center for confession. So, we have confessions uh, almost every day. Uh, every first Friday, confessions are till midnight. We have extra confessions um, on Monday evenings and during a holy hour. So I feel compelled that, you know, in my ministry as a parish priest to be a papal missioner of mercy is to provide additional opportunities and resources uh, within within uh, my specific ministry. And and the great it's great to hear what missionaries of mercy are doing who are college chaplains, uh, some really amazing work there, and, you know, professors and those who are in diocesan leadership, uh, what they're able to do. So it, it really is kind of a, a reflection of the diversity of of ministries and 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 calls mm-hmm. within the church. Mm-hmm. Do do people respond with these times for confession? Do yes. You, do you have people coming? I tell you, Bishop. Yes. You know, it's a, it's, it's amazing because some of my brother priests. Um, you know, we've had the I've had to have some heart to heart conversations because people respond because it's being preached, and when we preach about what confession is, so abs- uh, certainly the absolution of sin, but also healing. That you know, and and the reception of grace. So when we understand grace, and we understand sin, and we understand the new life given to us in Jesus Christ, uh, we we want to go to confession. And so by preaching it, by highlighting messages, uh, the confession times are, are always full. In fact, it is rare that I have to conclude confession times and have no line. And I've been encouraging my brother priests say, look, just you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to be a papal missionary of mercy to do this. Like, please expand the confession times in your parish, and then preach so that the people will come. So, for example, people are always kind of surprised with the midnight confessions uh, on first Friday, on first Friday, and um, it's packed. It's packed. And, and I'll tell you what people come back with is, thank you for doing this. My work schedule, family schedule, it's always so hard. Mm-hmm. So this is great. Like I can put the kids to bed. Uh, I get to confession because we have adoration at the same time. I get to pray. I come back and then my spouse goes and so on. It's like, this is perfect. So for working people, busy people, mm-hmm. that confession on first Friday, that confession time is has proven invaluable. Mm-hmm. See, the reason I asked Father Kirby is I think your experience validates what I've always held, and that is <clears throat> most people have fallen away from the practice of confession, in part because it's it's not easily available, and in part because we have not highlighted its importance. Yeah. Right. So if we do both, people will come. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that when and not to critique any anyone in particular, but when it says on the bulletin, confession by appointment only, <laughs> it's very, I mean, most people are not going to call and make an appointment to admit that they're a sinner. I mean, I just, yep. maybe it's yep. me. But, no, right? exactly. Yes, yes, very much. And, and I'll tell you, Bishop, it's interesting because of the seven sacraments, we know confession and anointing of the sick are the sacraments of healing. And they are right. the two most exactly neglected right. sacraments. Because I'd say I've had right. all kinds of conversations with the faithful in terms of the anointing of the sick. And and I just I, I have to look at this and say there's there's something wrong when the two sacraments that have been given to us by the Lord to heal us, to bring restoration, mm-hmm. are the ones that mm-hmm. are most neglected. And we look at a broken world that needs healing. You know, it's like right. we, we've got we've got to right. do better. We have these great gifts right. given to us by the Lord. Yeah, very much so. You know, here in the Diocese of Bridgeport, my my dream over the next few years, we have nine deaneries. We have 75 parishes. We have nine deaneries. Well, geographically, we're tiny. I mean, we're only 22 miles wide and 26 miles in the other way. (laughs) If you could call it that way. I mean, from one end to... So, I mean, we're 500 square miles. It's not... I mean, most dioceses are like... 20 times that. Mm-hmm. So in the nine deaneries, my hope, my dream in this this evolutionary renewal that we've begun is to have nine centers of perpetual adoration and nine centers of, of mercy. And sometimes they'll be in the same place. Sometimes they will not be in the same place and get all of the priests to work together to man the centers of mercy. Wow. Wow. 
Wouldn't that be great? Amazing. Yes, yes, yes. And and yeah. and and I have complete confidence that once those are are set up and and they they will be busy places. Yeah, busy places for the sake of God's people. Absolutely. And and the interesting thing is, we have a lot of spillover in our diocese from New York because we we border Westchester, so lots of people come back and forth, and mm-hmm. and we're so densely populated. My goodness, in that small space, we're a million people in the county. Wow. And about four hundred thousand of those are Catholic. So we're we're fairly we're we're not rural by any stretch of the imagination. We are more than suburban. Yes. Right? Great. Yes. Excellent. Yes. So. What uh, do you also teach moral theology, correct? Yes. Well, um, sometimes uh, so uh, at Belmont Abbey Morals is a as a junior class, and so I've taught that class a few times. But you know, you know how it is being an adjunct. You get what the um, tenured professors don't want. You know, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I say that respectfully, <laughs> uh, but uh, but oftentimes what I get is the uh, intro to scripture and intro to. Um, basically, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's intro to the, to the Catholic faith. Oh, great! And, and I enjoy that because it, it's the freshman, and and so we, mm-hmm. we come to, sometimes joke around, call it Grade Thirteen, because these young mm-hmm. people show up and they're right out of right. Uh, you know many of them right out of high school, and right. and fresh minds, and some of them you know have not gone to Catholic school. And so mm-hmm. the idea of having a theology class is is surprising, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's a priest, mm-hmm. you know, that that's teaching. Um, so it, it, it I, I like to think it keeps me a little connected to the younger church and to what's mm-hmm. going on in our society. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I enjoy it. So yes, you know, it's funny. I had I was an adjunct professor for St. John's University when I lived in Brooklyn. And it was at their Staten Island campus. And I know what you mean, because I was given the class sexual morality. Uh. And it was freshmen and sophomores. I walked in the class. There were 26 in the class. Every single one of them was a girl. There was not a single guy in the whole class. And I thought, Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, But it was one of the best experiences of my life. Because the girls were so open. Mm. Right. And not self-revelatory, but they were open to really kind of dig into the issues. It was like there was, it was just really, for me, it was an eye-opening yes. experience. But to your point, oh, yes. I'm sure lots of professors said, I'll pass on that one and give that to <laughs> somebody else. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, Bishop, to that point is there, there is an amazing openness, uh, as you're describing, uh, among young people. And to present the faith in an engaging way. Um, you know, what I try to do in my classes is, is present biblical accounts and then have them apply them to their own lives. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's just like, you see the scales just fall those epiphany moments where they begin to realize, Oh, wait a minute, this, this, this can actually help me, right? This, this actually brings mm-hmm. order to my life. This actually can give guidance. And, and I just think it's a powerful opportunity. Uh, I think with age, we, we get a little harder and, and a little more, um, difficult to reach. Uh, but, you get those 18, 19 year olds, um, they're, they're willing to, to encounter anything and to present the gospel mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ. Like, wow. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, again, just an immense opportunity. And it's refreshing uh, as you're describing your experience, Bishop. Like, there, there's a certain like a renewal that comes with that. That, yes, you know, uh, I think yeah. first because we get to get creative, like, okay, how do I present this now? Right. Cause, and, mm-hmm. and then, but secondly, the reaction, the response to that is, is also, I have found it rejuvenating yeah. to my own discipleship. Yeah, I, for for me personally, teaching is is in. This may be ironic to say, but teaching keeps me grounded in reality. Yes, because theologically, we could spin out into the stratosphere, right, and start speaking of the truths of faith almost as abstract realities. But when you're in a class, no matter who is in the class, but particularly young people, but not always young people. You know, then you have to grapple with, well, what does this mean to me? Like, what what difference should this make to me? Just as you mm-hmm. described, then suddenly you're no longer in the stratosphere. You're kind of walking the streets yes. of the yes. world and saying, what does this difference make? Yes. Yeah, my my senses, and again, you know, being I'm, I'm partial since I I'm on the subcommittee on the catechism to teach the catechism. Yes, is one of the great treasures the church has that most Catholics do not have access to. Right, or I shouldn't say access to. They have not been exposed to. Yes, 
And it's such a great compendium because it gives you the fullness of a, and, and most of the time, most Catholics, I think, don't realize that all these dots are connected yes. and they all make sense, right? Yes. And you paint a beautiful picture. They just see little pieces of it. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yes. Experience? And Bishop, I'll tell you, Our Lady of Grace, we're, we're one of the newest parishes in the United States. We're only about seven years old. And in the seven oh, wow. years, we have four different times given out the catechisms of the Catholic Church for free. So through donors, uh, we've got you know the, the, wow. the cheaper versions, you know, um, and have distributed them after all the masses on four separate occasions. I tell the people in your home because we also do this with with the, with the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, I said in your home, as in your Catholic home, there needs to be a copy of the Bible and Catechism of the Catholic Church, and trying to teach it and help the people understand. Like here, holding up that you know that one volume, say here is the collection of all the church's central teachings. Like this, this is a resource for you and, and trying to highlight that and, and, and to help people to begin to read and study this, the, the faith and to see that beautiful harmony that exists right. within sacred doctrine. It's like, oh, this all starts to make sense. Oh, this is all related. And so it's like, yes, yes, right. right, you right, know? right. Without a doubt, and quite frankly, some of the questions that people ask, the answers seem almost rote because they don't they don't really yet appreciate the principles upon which the answer rests. So the vast majority of questions in the modern world among Catholics are Christological and they don't realize that they're Christological. Yeah. Or they're ecclesial, but ecclesiology actually flows from Christology. So it, it, depending on what you believe or who you believe Jesus is, there is a corollary to most of the questions that people are vexed about, supposedly, in the contemporary world. Yes. You don't understand the first, you can't answer the second. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Right. And, and to be able to, to give the baptized these resources, you know, mm -hmm. I, I sometimes joke around. I say, you know, my four-foot spoon was accidentally lost at the airport, so there's no spoon feeding anymore, um, you know, and, and really to try to, you know, explain the scriptures, explain the catechism of the Catholic Church, and then give the resources to the faithful and say, okay, now like you, know, you learned how to golf, you, you learned how to do other things, mm -hmm. like um, now give a little bit of that effort to your faith, to your discipleship. Right. And and without the people are responding. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I'm gonna jump in here for a break. Uh, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with Father Jeffrey Kirby, a Southerner pastor, uh, papal missionary of mercy, and a professor of theology at Belmont Abbey College, and we'll be right back after the break. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Bishop Frank Caggiano is speaking with Father Jeffrey Kirby, who just wrote a book called A Year with the Popes. Excellency? Yeah, I mean, Father Kirby, uh, first and foremost, the fact that you studied seminary at North American College in Rome, you alluded to the fact that it gives you a perspective on the church, and um, which is unique. 
And of course, I did not study at the North American as seminarian, but I had the, the privilege to go as a priest, and I lived at the Casa uh, for yes. five years. So there's a sense of the, the antiquity, the continuity, the diversity of the church that is just spectacular, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And at the center of that is the papacy itself, right? From the time of the martyrdom of Peter. Now, the book that you wrote, A Year with the Popes, um, puts you in a very uh, excellent position to answer the following question. All right. Uh-oh. You ready? Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How did we get from St. Peter being crucified to the modern papacy? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that journey in history. Yes, yeah, I'll tell you. And 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 I have to tell you, Bishop, um, when we were talking about this book, uh, myself and the publisher, uh, my original proposal was actually a year with John Paul II because he was the ah. pope of my of my youth, the pope of my early formation as, as a priest. Uh, the book is dedicated mm-hmm. to uh, the priestly witness of John Paul II. And in the conversation with uh, the publisher, you know, they suggested, how about we broaden it and just do a year with the popes? And in brainstorming, that that was a better decision to just kind of highlight, you know, you know the the whole uh, beautiful uh, and interesting line of of men who have held uh, this the sacred office. And, and to your question, how do we get from you know this Galilean fisherman to um, mm-hmm. you know our our, our, our Argentinian uh, shepherd? You know uh, how how that all happen? And, and and I'll tell you, it's it's a beautiful the the, the story of the papacy is the story of the church. Uh, in in microcosm, because you look at the, the the popes, you can see the the molding and the shaping of of the church herself, and and that's powerful because it shows how much the Holy Spirit really is behind this. That we always get the pope that we need, we always have the emphases that we need, and there's always this kind of shifting and moving and balancing. Uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, through the ages of the church, and so you know, we go to the to the early church, and we and you know actually we can go to prophecy. I mean, Isaiah in particular prophesizes about this key bearer within the kingdom of David, and we know that the Messiah fulfills all the prophecies of the old, including the institutions of the kingdom of David. So just making that connection of saying, you know, when the Lord says to Peter, "I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." If you don't understand the prophecies behind that, you're not sure exactly what the Lord's talking about, right? What, what, what keys? Where'd that come from? What, what, what is He talking about, and so on? So, trying to make that connection, and then showing the relationship between Peter and the Lord, and uh, obviously Peter within the other apostles, but then also those very endearing moments where either Peter takes leadership, or it's just the Lord and Peter, and and highlighting these experiences, encounters as models for the papacy. So it's not simply these two men who are friends, but rather this exchange between the Lord Jesus and the chief apostle and how that becomes a kind of template for that relationship. The Lord with St. Peter, Peter with the other apostles, the other apostles with Peter to the Lord and to the entire body of believers. And and just highlighting that point by point by point and, and showing that history and then highlighting especially the Acts of the Apostles. And and by the way, this is the whole first part of the book. <laughs> you know, oh, and, good. And, good. And, and Acts of the Apostles. And, and, and one part that is very endearing to me um, in Acts of the Apostles is when the early believers lined the streets as Peter's coming back from prayer, and we're told that they lined the streets, they wouldn't disturb him because he was about the Lord's business, but they would line the streets with the hope that his shadow would fall mm-hmm. upon them because the man's shadow had the power to heal. I mean, that's you imagine like what the Lord gave to this chief apostle that his shadow could heal people. And and right. you know that that love and the affection and the reverence that the early apostles, the early disciples had to uh, the chief apostle, and and then watching, of course, Peter fulfill his role as he says, "Okay, the dietary laws are done." I mean, that's powerful. Like if we know like the story mm-hmm. of the Maccabees from the Old Testament, like that's what that's what they died over, and and yet Peter says, "Okay, hey, the Lord says uh, we're we're good, we're done." Um, let's let's cook up some bacon. It's it's time, it's time for a pork chop. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and 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 the body of believers trusted him and said, okay, like this is it. Or hey, we need to start baptizing the Gentiles. And by the way, I visited this guy Cornelius, and I, I baptized him. And this is what we're going to do now. And and obviously Peter's working with the other bishops, but he is the chief apostle. He is the vicar of Christ. 
mm-hmm. he's making these decisions and, and he himself is engaged in missionary work and, and we see his preaching and his teaching. And then we have those two letters uh, attributed to him in the New Testament that also are very powerful in teaching. So the whole first part of the book, and, and answer to your question, Bishop, is actually developing that whole point of what really early on was this meant to look like? the role of the chief apostle in his relationship with the Lord, his relationship with the church. What what was this beautiful assembly of the people of God, this church supposed to look like? And then of course, through the ages, we have the deepening and the development and the expanding and the adjustment and so on that goes to the ages. And then we see Vatican II kind of re-raise the question, what is the church? What is the church's mission in the modern world? We see the post-conciliar right. popes, especially John Paul II, and then, of course, Benedict and Francis, you know, seeking to implement that vision. And, and a part of that is going back and creatively retrieving some of this uh, pristine expression that we see in the early church. And so uh, it's a beautiful tapestry uh, with twists and turns of where we got mm-hmm. from the Lord Jesus and St. Peter mm-hmm. to the Lord Jesus and Pope Francis today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, thank you for the sharing that because I, I think it's beautifully said. Let's go back to Peter's personality, though. I find it to be fascinating. <laughs> I mean, a limited man, without a doubt, and yet chosen. And when he realized what the Lord had asked of him and allowed the Holy Spirit to truly transform him, his limitations also became gifts for his leadership of the church. Yes. Because in some ways, I mean, he was a bit stubborn. But on the other hand, that became perseverance in the the power of grace to allow him to be crucified and to remain faithful to what the Lord asked, right? But but I think the relationship between Peter and Paul, I just find to be, um, I mean, I can meditate on that my whole life. Yes. And how there is leadership, but there's an ability to listen. There's an ability of fraternal correction yes. and not have the world end. Yes, yes, right? <laughs> yes. You know the the way I think about Peter and Paul is the relationship I have with my older brother. You know, uh, we love each other. Uh, we're, we're you know we're, we're, we'll support each other. We, uh, but man, we can have some disagreements. Woo! I tell you, we we got some Irish hotheads. Do you know what I mean? Um, oh, is that right? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know the joke is if you have three, you get three Irishmen together, you're going to get five opinions, and they'll argue for all, each one of them. Do you know what I mean? And uh, yep. maybe the same is true about Italians. I'm not sure, but oh no, uh, we're worse. <laughs> it's just worse. <laughs> Yeah, but when I think of Peter and Paul, like the affection and, and and the love that they had for one another, even as there, you know, were disagreements at times between them, and and Paul, of course, had to correct uh, Peter at one point fraternally, and, and and felt the need to put that in his letter to the Galatians that he corrected Peter, right? <laughs> you know, um, but but yet, what's powerful is they were committed to the Lord; they were uh, brothers in Christ, and I think it's powerful. Our tradition says they died on the same day. Uh, June 29th, right. both dying martyrs, both within the eternal city, uh, shedding their blood for the Lord Jesus. So right. um, I think sometimes in right. our modern world, we get a little caught up in personality. But when we have a higher right. mission, our personality just brings more drama and flair to the commitment we have to Jesus Christ. So it's not a condition, but actually, you know, like a, a conditional thing, like, well, you know, I don't like that person's personality. I don't mm-hmm. like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I don't like the way they're approaching things. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than that, rather than being our you know, conditional in terms of our personality, instead it just becomes a part of the drama and the experience, right. you know, to work alongside right. people that we don't necessarily like, or maybe we have different agree, you know, personalities or temperaments right. or whatever. And yet there's a love and a bond that's beyond that, that allows us to continue to work mm-hmm. together, to love one another, to do great things in the mm-hmm. Lord's name. You know, that mm-hmm. I think is, is the real testimony. We, we need it in every age. I think in our world today, we especially need it where, yeah, we can disagree. We can have different personalities, but we still work together. We still have harmony. Right. We can still accomplish great things together. Mm-hmm. The other the other aspect of Peter and Paul that I often go back in prayer and reflection is the fact that Paul, I mean, he was an enemy of the faith. I mean, he consented to Stephen's martyrdom to have the conversion and for believers to actually learn to trust him. It's no small feat, mm-hmm. right? So to go from that to the relationship he had with St. Peter at the Council of Jerusalem, for example, is astonishing if you think of it. Just from human terms, it's, it's almost unbelievable from a human point of view. But from a divine point of view, it shows what the power of healing can do. Mm-hmm. 
right, in a community. Yes. And that's a lesson we have to learn in the in the contemporary church, I yes. think. And part of the reason I say that is because I think if you were to say, if you were to ask me, well, Bishop, what are one of, what's some of the unique challenges faced by leadership in the church, whether it's the papacy or the episcopacy or even like pastors, right? It's the presence of instantaneous, ongoing, and perpetual communication. The presence of social media, of which you are a major player in that, which is a great thing, trying to evangelize, also brings with it great challenges because the foibles of one person that in an earlier age would never be known is now known by everybody on earth. Yes. And it changes the whole dynamic of preaching the gospel. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. yes. What and do you think of that of that observation? I, I think it's spot on. And I think the, also the spontaneous nature. I mean, we, you know, we all have our moments of frustration or anger. And in the past, we would have had to sit down, type a letter, you know, get an envelope, get a stamp, wait for the next day to post it. Um, but now we can just go on social media and just spout off, you know, the most offensive or hurtful or uninformed things. And, and not give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, you know, mm-hmm. St. Paul's chapter on love in First Corinthians, like, you know, he says, like, you know, love gives the benefit of the doubt, right? Love is not brag. Mm-hmm. Love is not arrogant. You know, and so I think sometimes we, we pause that mm-hmm. to our own detriment as Christians right. when we should just pause and say, wait a minute, let me think this through. Let me assess this. Like, what do I really want to say? What's going on? Um, and, and, yeah, just I think social media can be a great resource, but it can also – you know, cause a lot of harm because we, we just, we, we spout off when we shouldn't. Right. right. And sometimes we, we use it in ways that we can no longer control. And then it takes a life of its own and things get further misunderstood. But going back to the ancient church, I mean, I, I remember when I was in the seminary, which is a long time ago, um, a comment was made that, you know, every age of the church is brought to renewal by a different state or a different group in the church, mm. okay? And if certainly in the patristic era, which is my favorite, to be honest, of, of the yes, eras, no, no offense much. to the contemporary world, uh, the bishops led the way. I mean, we had towering bishops and many towering popes, like St. Leo and St. Gregory. And I mean, talk, talk a bit about the, that era in the papacy. Yes, yes. So, you know, after the time of, of, of St. Peter, we have this, you know, series of popes. And, and, and first, let me highlight that the, the first 33 popes uh, all died martyred, uh, died martyrs. In fact, it was considered a death sentence to be elected Bishop of Rome. And, and, and men still wanted it. Uh, men wanted to die martyrs for the faith. They wanted to serve the church. They wanted to die and shed their blood for the Lord Jesus. So just the fact that the you know the first thirty three up you know up, uh, until the Edict of Milan in, in three thirteen A.D. like it was a death sentence, and and that was understood. And and that was that's not just the Bishop of Rome. We could expand that to bishops throughout the church. Mm-hmm. Like if you were be- to become a bishop, you would understand that that would involve very realistically the shedding of your blood, which oftentimes was preceded by immense torture. And so just imagine the purification in, in terms of, of, of that state where it's, you're elected, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, right? I was <laughs> in it to win it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So, and, right. and that was just a part of it. And so because of that, I think we find these you know, heroic testimonies. So in terms of the line of Peter, you know, very early on, uh, his, his, his third successor, a uh, fourth Pope, uh, Clement, St. Clement, uh, has immediate argument with the Corinthians. And, you know, if you just put that in context, you know, the Corinthians were always difficult. They gave St. P- uh, Paul a, a very difficult time. It was a port city. They were always constantly, you know, uh, compromising the faith and falling into all types of, of, of moral um, licentiousness and various things. And, and so St. Clement has to pick this up. And what I think is powerful is that, you know, when the bishop in Corinth is ousted um, by these rebellious disciples, um, he does not appeal to John who's right there in Patmos. He's, he's in close proximity. But instead, the ousted bishop goes to Clement as the successor of St. Peter. And Clement, of course, drafts the famous letter, which you know actually was debated. They, they, they considered it for the New Testament, but because Clement was fourth, uh, the fourth pope, third successor, uh, he was outside of the range of, of the criteria. In theology, we studied the letter. But Clement writes the letter and says to the disciples, basically, hey, 
uh, stop this. Uh, you're going to take your bishop back. Uh, if you're not with the bishop, you're with the devil. And you're going to do this now. And what I like is, you know, you look in the New Testament letters, Paul just always says, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, chosen by God, and so on. You know, he gives this whole, like, you know, paragraph bio, you know. Clement writes his letter. He says, Clement of Rome to the Christians of Corinth. <laughs> He doesn't have to explain Boom. anything. Boom. There's no bio. They know who he is. <laughs> they know the authority he has. And, and they repent and they welcome back the ousted bishop. And then, of course, later we have the powerful stories of, of Pope Leo, who defended Rome against Attila the Hun. He presided over the, the Council of Chalcedon, which gave us the definitive, you know, concise definition of the identity of Jesus Christ. But Pope Gregory the Great, who reforms the liturgy and and has an immense love uh, for the poor, he was a monk before he was elected, and Pope Gregory said, "As Bishop of Rome, if one person dies of hunger, my salvation is in jeopardy, because I am to be the father of the poor as their bishop." And so he was known to walk the city of Rome and give alms, and oftentimes barefoot. And so a man of just immense austerity, again coming from the monastic tradition. And, and of great love. And, and, you know, in the early church, this, this is what we saw in terms of uh, bishops in general, but especially bishops of Rome. Mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, there is the, the uh, reflection of Pope Gregory in the office. You may recall it when he bemoans how many administrative duties he has <laughs> and how they take him away from the work that he knows the Lord is asking. I take such great consolation <laughs> when I read yes. that. <laughs> yes. But even in those days, because see that, so that there's another dynamic here, and perhaps we could explore it. And that is after Constantine, after the Edict of Milan, the duties of the papacy began to shift to, or maybe expand is the better word, because it became more administrative yes. too, did they not? Right. Eventually, they evolved into becoming a governing sovereign yes. of eventually papal states. Right. So that it, martyrdom caused, of course, to give up your life. But there wasn't the, that aspect of the papacy that developed. Is, is that is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And, and in fact, after uh, the Edict of Milan, uh, so the basically it tolerates or legalizes uh, the church. What we see is an expansion of the monastic tradition because now those who would want to have been called to martyrdom instead begin to say, well, if I can't shed my blood for the faith, then I will live the ascetical life. So we see this explosion of you know, desert spirituality among the desert fathers, the desert mothers, who begin to make up through the ascetical life, what they would have offered through, uh, you know, blood martyrdom, and concurrently, what we see is now the church has to answer the questions. Uh, okay, well, how do we fit in, a, you know, in an empire? How do we fit as a stational church? You know, we can forget that so much of the early church was was very uh, nomadic, uh, itinerant, mm -hmm. you know, and so suddenly now we have established houses of worship we have you know the the bishop now has his 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 staff right you know and 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 what is you know what does that look like like what 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 does you know and, and of course there are imperial responsibilities given to the bishop because especially constantine and his immediate successors trusted bishops because they were men of, of integrity and they could be trusted with money, right? And and so suddenly they're being given these imperial responsibilities because hey, if you want those houses of worship, you're gonna have to, you know, be a part of the team. And and yeah, we see this molding and shaping um, you know, after uh, the age of toleration that that changes the interaction of the church with society. And and you know, there are some losses there, but there are also some immense gains as well. And, you know, to the point you made earlier, Bishop, like, you know, the, the church adjusts in every age and is right. defined and renewed by different spiritualities and groups within the age she finds herself. Right. right. You know, it, it's, again, my understanding of how things have evolved over time um, includes the admonition that we need to be cautious that whatever model we used and has evolved under the under grace, that we have to avoid the excesses of it. Yes. Right. So the imperial model existed in some ways. The papacy began to slowly incorporate some of the trappings of what that looked like, but always with the admonition that it's always in service of Christ, the poor, and his people. Yes. And there's always that tension, right? We, 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 we 
we want to be in the world and not of the world. Yes. We want to learn from it the best and move on to serve the kingdom of God. So we go into the dark ages and the middle ages, and some of that was not always done well. Yes. <laughs> Could I put it that way among the both? Yes. Uh, well, and I'll tell you, Bishop, what's interesting is I've heard people say, oh, you know, it was, it was the trappings of the Middle Ages. Oh, it was the, you know, the indulgence of the Renaissance that, you know, hurt the church and so on, you know. And and, and really, I, I always like to remind people is, you know, the church took on the vestiges of the age in order to have credibility. Because if the church had tried to be in the imperial culture living in the patristic era, you know, with, with, with that approach, mm -hmm. the church would have failed in the call mm -hmm. to evangelization. So the problems mm -hmm. were not the imperial culture or the Renaissance, you know, environment. The problem is when we lose the call to holiness, because whether it's as a baptized Christian or as a priest, bishop, or as bishop of Rome, if holiness is continued to be pursued, then whatever the church has to take on for credibility in the age in which she is, that will mm -hmm. not diminish what the church is called to do. So if a person, and we certainly had our Medici and, and the Borgia Popes, um, you know, during the Renaissance, like when the trappings become the man rather than the man using the trappings, then some, that's when, we, that's when the church hurts. That's when right. evangelization suffers. Absolutely. In the end, I find it, uh, 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 sobering. If there were no church, there would have been no Renaissance. Yes. In effect, yes. It, uh, unfortunately, uh, those there were significant numbers of Christians who lost the 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 I would say the control, the direction of the Renaissance, right? But it is really the power of beauty, and the power of beauty to evangelize is what we're rediscovering in the 21st century, yes. right? In the church, yes, that it's not just an intellectual. Uh, operation, but it's engagement of the heart as well yes. to be able to truly encounter Christ. Yes. It's fascinating. And then, of course, we had the Reformation, and I think we're going to run out of time very soon. So we got to the 16th century, <laughs> 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 but well, we've been around for a exactly. while. That's the point. <laughs> we have a but, great family uh, history as Catholics. You know, you know what a great image a family history. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. It is a family history. Yep. Well, that's that's worth preaching on. Now you have given me some great, <laughs> a great image to explore, yeah. because yeah, it's like family, and, and and whose family doesn't have, you know, the saints and the rogues. Mm -hmm. What family doesn't have the high points and low points? You know, the moments where we could look back and proud, and the others we forget it ever happened. I mean, every family has absolutely. That. Yep, yep. And, and, and the we same should is be. Yep. The and the twists and turns were all part of it. And like, you know, the, the the expression, you know, God is writing straight with crooked lines. And, you know, we've got right. it all. And yeah, just right. like every family history. Right. Uh, before we end, I just want to make a, well, first of all, I thank you for that. And I look forward to reading the, your, the book because I think for everybody listening, to, there are many ways to look at the history of the church. You could trace it in many different ways, the lives of the saints, but the lives of the popes gives you a unique perspective that I think everyone should read, right? And have an appreciation so that you also have a hermeneutic to kind of interpret even the contemporary world, mm -hmm. whether it is the recent popes or the popes who will come for the generations who come after us, which I will not be around for. But I mean, um, but I think in the end, for us, uh, <laughs> you've heard it said many times, I'm going to say it again for this, my own spiritual sake, and that is the church, with all its, its triumphs and failures, is one of the greatest manifestations of the power and divinity and the of Jesus Christ present in our midst. If we were a human enterprise, we would have collapsed long, <laughs> yes. long, long yes. ago. Right? Yes, yes, yes. So an appreciation of history is an appreciation of the true nature of who the church is. Yes, yes. Right. It reminds, Excellent. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, the Pope uh, Pius who was uh, held captive by Napoleon and uh, when Napoleon uh, threatened the Pope because he wouldn't sign the concordant ceding the rights of the church, uh, Pope Pius told uh, Napoleon, uh, I'm not going to sign. And Napoleon says, if you don't sign this concordant, I will destroy your church. And Pope Pius laughed and said, good luck. My priests and I have been trying for 1,800 years and have yet to be successful. <laughs> 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 so we can have humor about this too, right? You know? so, Absolutely. Very much. Absolutely.
Philip Corby, thank you. There's so much more in the book. So listeners should definitely pick up the book, A Year with the Popes with Father Kirby. But we're going to take a quick break and um, come back on the other side with a listener question. And then we'll be able to find out where we can get the book and all kinds of other stuff. So this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey, this is Matt Sparazza from The Tangent. Each week on The Tangent, my co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, and I go on tangents to show how intertwined the Catholic faith and our culture really are. With guests like Scott Hahn, Dr. Greg Pitaro, Kristalina Everett, and so many more, The Tangent is always entertaining and informative. Check us out on Fridays at 12.30 on 103.9 FM, 1350 AM, anytime on the Veritas app, or wherever you get your podcasts. God bless. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. All right, Excellency, this question came in and kind of broke my heart. Um, But the uh, listener writes in and she asks, what to do when adult children consider a non-sacramental marriage? What are the ramifications for the Eucharist and children's baptisms? And she writes, greatly appreciate tips on how to guide this sorrowful conversation. Well, it is a very it's a it's a very uh, poignant and very sad topic to raise, but one that many 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 Catholic parents are facing with their adult children. More and more are marrying outside the faith. They are marrying those who once were already married, and therefore they're not entering into the sacrament of marriage. And it puts them in a situation where they are outside the ability to receive Holy Communion, right? and that's a, a grave consequence. My my recommendation would be this. I think to the best of the person's ability to have their, their children, or at least their child and, and fiancé, meet with someone who could spiritually journey with them to explore what it is they really are looking for in life. Because the theoretical answer is not going to be enough. There may be a kernel there that can be built upon where they may choose differently. Right? And if there's an impediment to a sacramental marriage, there are remedies for that. Right? And once again, a spiritual journey with someone who can explore the details of what we're talking about is of inestimable value. But I think children can be baptized, certainly. That is the practice of the church if they're going to be raised in the Catholic faith. But to raise children in the Catholic faith when one is not able to go to Holy Communion is is like trying to do something with with such a grave obstacle. So uh, that would be my recommendation. And if the listener wants to reach out to me personally in the office, I'd be happy to to talk about it in more detail. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Uh, Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And thank you to uh, Foundations in Faith, a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization, makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. And Father Jeffrey Kirby, this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people get your book and find out more about you? Yeah, so uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. And Bishop, it's such a blessing to, to have this conversation with you. Thank you very, very much. Um, so uh, my website is frkirby.com, and, and we put on there all, all the different things that, that I'm involved with or, or articles that might help in terms of aspects of the faith. So frkirby.com. Also, you mentioned at the beginning of the, the podcast, I, I, I give uh, the uh, Daily Reflections uh, Morning Offering with Father Kirby. That's at morningoffering.com. And, and it just it, it's a, it's the prayer, the traditional morning offering prayer. And it's about a two or three minute reflection. So people can listen to it on their way to work or you know while they're having breakfast with the kids or whatever. And, and it's just a quick way to offer the prayer and to lift up our minds uh, and hearts to God at the beginning of the day. So uh, morningoffering.com. And then the book can be found at Tam Books, the publisher, but also through any local Catholic bookstore. Father Kirby, you're doing tremendous work. God bless you, really. And and God bless your ministry, because I, I have absolutely no doubt you are touching many, many people's lives. Mm. 
for the better. Thank you, Bishop. So if no one has ever said that to you, let me be the first. <laughs> Thank you for all that you are doing. Thank you, Bishop. Right? And you're always welcome to come back. Thank you. If we have 500 more years of the papers that we talk about for starters. <laughs> Thank you. Excellency, before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Sure. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord in his loving kindness grant you his peace. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, my friends. Father Kirby, God bless you in your ministry, Steve. All right, I'll see you next week. Thanks, Thanks Father.